a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon, Episode 24. In Episode 23, Ike and Cookie Johnson came to Cedar City, Utah, for the funeral of their daughter, Maddie Johnson. While he is there, Ike Johnson visits the home he had purchased for his daughter. He goes through her things and finds her journals. In reading her journals, he discovers how much his daughter felt for Con Solier, and he begins to suspect Con of having had a hand in his daughter's death. He finds Maddie's will and sees that she has left both the house she lived in and the house she is renting to her neighbor and finds that slightly odd. And now, episode 24 of A Gentle Thief. Sophie slept late into the morning, late for her. It was after nine o'clock when she finally opened her eyes and squinted at the alarm clock. Normally, she would have panicked seeing the time so late, but today she just shook her head slightly and walked to the bathroom. She had done all her panicking for the year yesterday. Sophie hadn't found a hotel room until after midnight. She had stayed through the end of Hamlet and clapped wildly with the rest of the audience through all of the curtain calls. Only then did she walk back to her car and drive to the Abbey Inn. The woman behind the desk looked tired, but was kind when Sophie told her she didn't have a reservation. You're in luck, the woman said. We have a cancellation. Otherwise, we're all booked up. Is it the festival? Sophie asked. Oh, yeah. We get really busy this time of year. Sophie nodded and gave her a credit card. She felt a little funny checking into a motel by herself, especially so late at night. But when she left the desk to walk back to her car, she passed an older couple walking toward their room, the woman's arm hooked into her husband's. Sophie assumed they were just getting back from Hamlet, too. That made Sophie feel better, somehow. When she got inside her room, she set the key down carefully on the desk next to her purse. She washed her face, talked briefly to Sean, told him how much she loved him, and finally climbed under the sheets. They were crisp and cool and perfect. She didn't reach for the remote. She just turned off the light and fell asleep without any more thought of the day's events. Now, nine hours later, her mind started to churn again. The first thing she wanted to do was call Rosie. It's about time you called, Rosie kidded when she picked up the page. I don't even know where to start, Rosie, but I want you to read me the ME's letters. Okay, let me go get them. Hold on. Rosie put her on hold and was back in a flash. She read the brief three-paragraph letter from Dr. Green in Seattle and then the longer two-page letter from Dr. Horowitz in Phoenix. Sophie didn't interrupt. She just listened closely. When Rosie finished, Sophie asked, Will you give me Dr. Horowitz's number? 
Rosie read her the number, then asked, Are you going to call Rick, or should I tell him you'll be late? Oh, I I wouldn't make you do that. Sophie laughed. Thank you, Rosie said, obviously relieved. He's not going to be too happy you're out of the office again. He's got plenty of other associates to bother. He won't miss me, Sophie replied, surprised at how little she was worried about Rick's reaction. After she and Rosie hung up, the first person she called was not Rick. It was Dr. Horowitz. She didn't expect to reach him, but thought she would leave her cell number and maybe he'd call back later in the day or the next. He answered the phone on the second ring. Caught off guard, Sophie said, Dr. Horowitz, it's Sophie Brownlee calling from Las Vegas about the Madeline Johnson case. I'm sorry to bother you. No bother. I thought I might be hearing from you. Do you have a few minutes or should I set up a time to call you back? Sophie asked respectfully. Now is just fine. How can I help? I want to tell you first of how grateful I am for your time and expertise. I appreciate the letter you sent along with your report. I can tell your client is struggling with the truth of this thing. I've seen it before. Seen what before? Sophie asked. Seen family members struggle with accepting a loved one's suicide. I've had families call me for years, asking if I had considered this or that, sometimes angry in their attempts to change my mind. It's hard, and it's harder when they blame themselves. Is that when they usually struggle the most, when they're blaming themselves? Sophie asked. Yes, it's never easy, of course, but when a father feels guilty... He'll have a harder time moving on. Or when a mother feels guilty, she won't be able to accept the truth of what happened. She'll want to blame it on somebody else. What is the truth of what happened here, doctor? From all the evidence I reviewed, Madeline Johnson shot herself with a thirty-eight revolver at close range and died instantly. But what about the powder test coming back negative? Oh, I'm surprised they still do those things. They're so unpredictable. What about the position of the gun, then, in her hands? It looks so staged. How could she hold a gun that big to her head and have it come back around the front of her and rest so peacefully in her hands on her chest? She looks positioned by a funeral home almost. Let me tell you, Miss Brownlee, I've seen Stranger. I saw a videotaped suicide once. The guy started the camera, berated his wife for about five minutes, and then shot himself in the head, right temple, just like Ms. Johnson. About five minutes later, the camera still rolling, his head and body sat straight up for a few seconds before falling over completely. It was the strangest thing. Sophie didn't say anything. You see, death is stranger than most people know. We don't understand all of the physiological responses in death. Things happen, unexpected, unpredictable things. I had one case of a guy who actually killed himself with a chainsaw. He wanted it to look like murder so his wife would get the insurance money. I guess he was thinking, who would kill themselves with a chainsaw? Nobody could pull that off. But he did. Wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't worked on the case myself. Sophie felt stunned. I don't mean to be callous, Miss Brownlee. As you alluded to in your letter, I am not a stranger to suicide. I lost my granddaughter a few years ago. When I tell you that I empathize with your client, I mean it. 
I know he doesn't want to believe his daughter took her own life. I understand that. But this is the truth of it. With my 30 years of experience and all the evidence I examined, I can tell you with near certainty that his daughter killed herself. Now, I will never be able to tell you why, and her father will never know either. If it helps him at all, you might share this with him. And some of this I learned when I lost my own granddaughter. People, particularly young people, kill themselves for a wide variety of reasons that only they will ever understand. Sometimes they seem perfectly fine to everyone in their lives, including their parents, but wake up one morning and decide it's over. There isn't always a sign. There isn't always something that could have been done. Sometimes it's just what they do. Some people wake up today and go shopping. Some people call a friend. Some people kill themselves. That's just the way of it. Sophie listened with all of her being. She listened, let go of the argument in her, and truly listened. She took in what Dr. Horowitz was saying. Then she thanked him, hung up, and made a decision. Hi, baby, Sophie said when Sean answered the phone an hour later. How are you? I've been thinking about you all morning. I'm great. I'm really great. Wow, what's going on? I have so much to tell you. I I don't know where to start. Start with the boyfriend. I've been worried about that slimy SOB. You said you talked to him and that everything was okay, but how did you find him? What did he say? I found him through Dr. Theron, who was a counselor who met with Khan, that's his name, Consulier, and Madeline back in 1983, right before she died. Well, how'd you find her? Sean asked. It was a fluke, really. I found her when I was at the English department looking for Madeline's ex-husband. He's not at SUU anymore, but the woman there remembered him, and she happened to live next door to Dr. Theron. She recommended I talk to her, which I did. It was so amazing how everything just fell into place. People were home when they could have not been, answered the phone when they could have let it ring. It's, it's just been a wild 24 hours. Sounds like it. So, Dr. Theron tells me about meeting with Khan and Madeline 20 years ago. She remembers a lot because of Maddie's death, I guess, and, and because Khan wrote a sort of expose article about it a couple of years after. Really? I thought he was a suspect. Only in my client's mind, as it turns out, Ike Johnson seems to be the only one who believes Khan killed her. So, now how'd you find him? The reporter and Sean always got back to the facts. Dr. Theron gave me his address. Sophie decided to leave out the part about trespassing in his home. Sean didn't need to know that and worry more than he already had. And he agreed to talk to me. I asked him if he thought she committed suicide. Well, what'd he say? He said he had for a while. He spent like an hour telling me about Maddie, about her childhood, about how messed up she was. Why? Was she abused or something? No, not that. Her parents got divorced when she was 13, and she took it really hard. Her mother didn't help things, calling her father the devil all the time, complaining about him constantly. 
Her mother spoke to Maddie when she was a young girl about things that were way too adult, stuff a mother should never tell a daughter. Oh, man. It gets worse. The father winds up remarrying not too long after her parents got divorced. He met this woman named uh, Samantha and fell like head over heels. The woman was nice, too nice, I guess. She was always trying to make Maddie happy, you know, buy her things and do things with her. Maddie couldn't handle it. She even bought Maddie a Corvette when she turned 16. Wow. So much for the evil stepmother. Yeah, really. Give me an evil stepmother like that. So what happened? Maddie was in a car accident the summer after she got the car. She hit another car head-on, killed the woman in the other car. Wow, that would mess you up. The woman in the other car was her stepmother. Sophie checked out of her room just before noon. She drove up the canyon toward Madeline Johnson's old house. She wanted to see it, to see where Junior lived now and had since 1984. Khan had told her that Maddie left the houses to her neighbor in her will, one of the few details Ike Johnson had not included in the file. Khan's resentment of Junior was obvious. He resented the way Maddie had talked about him when she was alive, and he doubly resented that she had given him the houses. He sure could have used them, but then... Considering their heated relationship, he realized that was unlikely. Junior had moved out of the smaller house and into Maddie's the week after her funeral. A few months later, he rented his old house out to another contractor he often did jobs with. He kept working himself, although taking fewer jobs. Having no mortgage and an income from the other property, he didn't need to work like he used to. As the years passed, Junior started keeping more and more to himself. People around town wondered what had gotten into him. First, he picks up with that girl Beth, who was no good, and stays with her for a few years until she moved away. Nobody really knew what happened between them. She just flew the coop one day. Junior didn't have any long relationships after that. Con never saw him at Hal's or much of anywhere. Sophie didn't expect to see him that day as she drove toward the canyon, but she had to see it for herself. She followed Con's instructions and turned right onto Red Rock Drive. The small house at the edge of the street looked more run down than she had expected it to. She pulled up to the house at the end of the drive. She noticed the security cameras right away. Then she noticed there were small mirrors positioned on the roof in several spots, pointing in different directions. Maybe it was the sun reflecting off the mirrors that drew her eye up to the roof. Sophie could see three security cameras and at least three mirrors. The house was dark. Curtains pulled in front of every window. There was a new Ford truck parked in front. Sophie figured Junior was home, but she wasn't going to approach him. At least not today. She stared at the house for as long as she dared, then put the car in reverse. She turned to her right to look over her shoulder. A large blonde man was bent over looking in her passenger side window right at her. He startled her. Sophie caught her breath. She hadn't noticed him approaching the car. The man knocked on the window. She fiddled until she found the power window switch in the rental car and lowered the window. You lost? he asked.
just after midnight, January 1st, 1984. Maddie sat on the floor in the living room, hugging her knees tight to her chest. She had the TV on with the sound turned all the way down. She didn't want to hear the voices and the noisemakers, but she didn't want to be completely alone either. She watched the crowds and the confetti in Times Square an hour or so ago when the ball dropped. The color of it caught the corner of her eye, and she turned to see. The New Year. Happy New Year, she whispered out loud. Then she went back to her thoughts, and her rocking, and her singing. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night, she sang softly, her voice cracking. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. Maddie sang, on and on, waiting for the rhythm to strengthen her. She waited for the chorus to lift her back up to where she could walk again, but it didn't. So she kept singing, off and on, and staring, her eyes dropping tears from time to time. She wouldn't have thought she had any tears left, but her body seemed to be an endless factory. She cried in the new year, wept it in, waiting. She knew her mother was right. No man would ever come along to make it better. Robert could not. He tried, but he couldn't do it. Khan didn't try, but he wouldn't have succeeded even if he had. No one would ever be able to make it better. This agony, this pain in her chest, would be with her always. This was the truth of it. She had hoped ever since the day in the parking lot outside her school, the day her father told her he was leaving and wasn't taking her with him, that some day the pain in her chest would go away. She had been hoping for ten years now. It was time to let go. She thought of her father in the quiet of this night, morning, really, since it was after midnight now. She wondered how he had rung in the new year. She wondered how he had managed to keep going, worrying about his lawn, going to work every day, putting up with the occasional hurtful phone call from Maddie's mom. Why had he not just ended it after Samantha died, after she killed her? Why hadn't he just blown his brains out or run his car into a tree, just ended it? Why did he keep on suffering? For her, she imagined, he stuck around for her. Even though she just kept pushing him away, he probably kept going for her. He had always felt so guilty about leaving her. She knew that. She exploited it. She wanted him to feel guilty. Only now, in the pain of this holiday morn, did she think it might be time to finally let him off the hook. Maybe he had paid enough. Forgiving him wouldn't take her pain away, but it might help his, she thought. She considered picking up the phone. She looked around and saw the phone on the end of the table. Maddie walked through the conversation in her mind, what she would say. Hi, Dad. It's me. Sorry to call so late. It's just... I'm struggling a little bit, and I needed to tell you something. I forgive you. I forgive you for leaving. And I hope you forgive me for... for taking Samantha away from you and... for... everything. That didn't sound right. It only made the tears start to fall faster. No use in calling. 
No use. Maddie sat on the floor for the better part of another hour, trying to will her body to move. She wanted to go to bed. Her back was aching, and her head pounded. She was hungry, but knew she couldn't eat. Besides, there wasn't anything except stale Oreos and a few chips in the cupboard. She thought of getting her journal out, but let the thought pass. She didn't have the energy to analyze. Water. She needed water. That was finally the craving that unfolded her legs and helped her move toward the kitchen. She got a glass from the cupboard just as the needles started to shoot through her feet. She hobbled to the water cooler and poured a tall glass. She drank it slowly until it was empty, then poured another. Her belly felt instantly fuller with the water in it. She walked with her second glass into the bathroom and turned on the tub. The sound of the pouring water was deafening. Maddie had not realized how quiet it had been for hours until the gush of water broke the silence. She poured in bath oil that smelled like eucalyptus and took off her clothes. She stood in the bathroom mirror, naked, looking at how thin she had become. Her ribs stood out prominently, her hip bones too. Her skin was pale except the redness around her eyes and nose. Her eyes were swollen, nearly shut from crying, puffy and numb to the touch. She kept touching them anyway, just to see if she could feel anything. Maddie soaked until she felt herself starting to doze off. She emerged from the tub, weak from the heat. Then she walked to her bedroom and put on her baby blue nightgown, the one her husband had given her for Valentine's Day the year before. She had not worn it since she got divorced, and only rarely before then. But tonight, this morning... She put it on over her damp head. It was loose and cool on her skin. She reached into her bedside table and took out a sleeping pill. She looked at it carefully before she put it on the back of her tongue and swallowed it with a glass of water she brought with her from the bathroom. Then she reached toward the floor to turn on the electric blanket. She felt cold, so she turned it up past the halfway setting. She paused for a moment then removed the gun her father had bought her. She opened it, checked the bullets, then clicked it closed again. She held it up to her heart and thought of her father. Maybe this was the best gift he could have given her. <laughs> 